Do you have an inner Zelensky? If you're not sure, stick around for this episode of Datages, and we'll help you figure it out. And also share with you why finding your inner Zelensky might be a great New Year's resolution for you this year. Datages friends and family, welcome back to Datages. Here in December, we're continuing with the themes and topics we covered throughout the month of November. If you recall, the Datage we introduced was extremists paint compromise as weakness because they know it is the only force strong enough to defeat them. In our recent episodes, we spent time covering the intense conflict in the Middle East as war rages in Gaza, as well as the impact here in the U.S. through the ongoing war between extremism and centrism. In today's episode, we have the opportunity to apply that same lens to the other great conflict being waged in the world, the war in Ukraine. And we are very fortunate to be joined today by someone who has a unique vantage point and has studied the subject, particularly focusing her studies on Vladimir Zelensky, the leader who has emerged on the world stage through his determination and steadfast stewardship of his country and his people throughout the war. Today's guest is Jesse Kanzer, who has recently written her second book, Unlocking Your Inner Zelensky, which we'll delve into today. As I said, Jesse has a unique vantage point she was born in the former Soviet Union and left at age eight. In her prior career as an actress, she once appeared in a Zelensky film that was shot in New York City, and she has followed Zelensky, or Zay, as he is affectionately known by the Ukrainian people, ever since. Kanzer has written for the New York Times, USA Today, the Washington Post, and many other publications. I'm very pleased to welcome our second mom to appear on Datages. Jesse, thank you so much for being with us here today. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Chad. So honored to be a second mom here. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. We're really looking forward to it. And, and Jesse, let's just dive in and let's start with your new book, Unlocking Your Inner Zelensky. What exactly does it mean to have an inner Zelensky? And how can Zay, as you refer to him, be an inspiration and an example for all of us? So to me, and we'll get into the backstory in a little bit, I'm sure, but to me, what this inner Zelensky represents is impeccable moral clarity. And I know you've been talking about all of the problems going on in the world before me here. Uh, they seem to have just only multiplied since I've written the book, sadly, and yet also realistically, because what we realize is with every giant calamity, the problems have been there all along, and we just maybe on our side of the world weren't aware of them or as aware of them. You're so right. We here in the U.S. are so insular in our focus and focused on just what happens within within our own borders that we often don't see what's going on in the rest of the world until it's too late. We had our own problems, right? We always have our own problems. This is the reality of being human. And I think that as Zelensky rose to you know, the world stage, I think that we've all been so unbelievably impressed by him because we lacked those um, certain qualities of leadership in our own leaders lately or for a long time, depends who you ask, I guess. But um, the point being that that inner moral clarity, and I would couple that with humility, with um, the ability to remain human, as well as this elevated leader, that's 
that's what I mean by unlocking your inner Zelensky. Yeah, it's it's really an amazing model for looking at leadership and as you said, balanced with humility, humanity, and humor as well. Uh, humor, you know, absolutely. A- absolutely. Let's remember the humor. I mean, this was a comedian, professional comedian. Wonderful perspective, and we'll, we'll get into it more. The, the dadage that, that we're covering today is, is about the power of centrism, which is really coming under attack these days from all sides uh, in, a, in a polarized world that's just totally dominated by extremism. A concept that is very much aligned with centrism is the idea of unity. You've brilliantly illustrated in your book how Zelensky as a leader stands for unity in Ukraine. Uh, In his humility, as you've talked about here, um, he has said that he's a simple person. He said, we're all simple people. Um, And he even went on in his inaugural address to say, every one of us is the president now. Can you elaborate on this for the Dadages friends and family? Can you explain these messages of unity and accountability that came from Zay? Sure. And by the way, the, Z- the Zay moniker was uh, what was it's what his people gave him, you know? So yeah. I was also surprised to find that, but it really made the writing much easier than just saying Zelensky, Zelensky, Zelensky. So I'm really glad and you it, picked up it. makes up it easier that. to listen to in audiobook format as well. The, yes. Thank you for mentioning that, right? The audiobook format is wonderful, by the way, done by um, Ukrainian actress, American Ukrainian. Beautiful voice. She she reads it extremely well and definitely does your work justice. Thank you. I thought so as well. So um, one of my favorite of his quotes is, as you mentioned, I'm not a politician. I'm just a simple person who has come to break down the system. And he went on and on in in his inaugural address in um, in the time of war as well to remind people that we are all ordinary. We're all just people doing our best. Um, I thought it was such an important message because usually we see leaders in their like egoic form, right? Like they get like their yeah. ego gets more and more inflated. Yeah. I mean, Donald Trump was all about breaking down the system too, right? right. But he came into it with ego, uh, oozing exactly. ego exactly. out of every pore practically. Exactly. And see, that's the big difference here is um, I've watched Zelensky continuously. As you mentioned, I've researched him. Um, for years before the war began, but I continue to follow and never has he wavered from that balance of human slash leader versus just inflated leader. So this idea of being an ordinary person, every one of us is the leader of our time. He also said when he received the Times Person of the Award, a person of the year award, um, he said, every one of us is the leader of our time. Also true especially with our technology now and every one of us, like you and I having our own platforms, however the size, we each have influence. And so this reminder, for me, it helps us not just be like, oh, yay, there's Zelensky and he's humble, but also helps us understand that we each um, have an opportunity to rise to Mm -hmm. what's being asked of us, of each of us, to rise to, to maybe be a little more responsible for what we put out there and a little more conscientious of what we want our message in the world to be. Yeah. If Zay can do it, we can do it, right? You went on in your own words to say, and I really love this point that you made in the book, that we're united as human beings by our ordinariness and that there is great power in ordinariness and that ordinary is limitless as a result. And I think that that's just such a beautiful message. And I really loved how it resounded in, in your book. 
Thanks. I mean, at my heart, um, as, and I say this, I'm a spiritual nerd, a self-help guru. No, just kidding by the guru, because I, I, I think the guru, the whole guru aspect is an inflate, another inflated yeah. ego thing. The last thing in the world I would ever aspire to be is a guru. <laughs> yeah, because it's fake. There's no, I mean, I, I shouldn't say that. In history, there have been gurus, but yes, I, yes. yes to the aspire. modern context of the guru is a terrible facsimile of what it really meant at one time. A hundred percent. And so like, so I, when I say spiritual guru, I should, I should mention for those who don't realize, but I know that you guys love humor and adages. So yes, with the, I say that with complete irony, what I'm saying Tongue is fully inserted. Yeah, exactly. In <laughs> exactly. So um, I do love to, to find the spiritual though in everyday life. I think yes. that's where, it really helps us to, to find a spiritual uh, uplifting aspect in even more, right? As a spiritual student, though, I was um, a longtime reader of the Bhagavad Gita. That's um, ancient Hindu yeah. uh, text that some know, some don't know. But the interesting thing is the Bhagavad Gita takes place in a time of war. It's a conversation that takes place between a person who does not want to fight the war that he has to fight in. Because I have this background of being a spiritual student and teacher sometimes is um, this background helped me see Zelensky as that. And so I realized that he was a reluctant wartime leader. He didn't mm -hmm. want war. He really... You talked about centrism. He really hoped to find a peaceful solution, to find some kind of um, dialogue with what ended up being an impossible partner to dialogue with Putin. But he yeah. did want that. And not being able to do that, he turned his attention to ordinariness of everybody and to unity. Because mm -hmm. the natural thing that happens in a time of calamity is that people become unified. This is they a response. Together, yeah. Right. We, yeah. We've seen this response you know, in America after 9-11, it's something that happens. Unfortunately, it takes tragedy for that unity to surface, but it's there all along. And so this unity, this uh, Zelensky's great challenge and ability has been to keep that unity going, to keep that sense of unity for his people, because the war is an ongoing conflict, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, without an end in sight right now, unfortunately. And let's continue on the theme of Zay and centrism. Um, you, you talked about when Zay first took office in Ukraine, he was thrust right into the center of world affairs and politics. He was positioned between two extremely polarizing figures in the early days of his administration, Putin and Trump. But he was successful in maintaining this centrist perspective in those early days of his administration, as you were as you were talking about. Can you explain a little bit about how you think he was able to achieve that? Yes, I um, I watched that closely. I wrote a bunch of articles during that time um, because so my first article I ever wrote about Zelensky was something like I was once in a rom-com with the Ukrainian president or something. It was just, just in the days following his being elected president in Ukraine. Now to backtrack, I was an actress for a long time, a actress, waitress, actress, tutor, uh, a struggling actress. Uh, when in New York, there was a movie filming in the Russian language. I went for a little part and it ended up being a Zelensky film. It was his first big feature film. He was one of just three stars. Um, I had this tiny little role, but irrelevant. It was a fun role. I got paid well. 10 years later, he was the president of Ukraine. So yes, I started watching him then because it was a pretty huge rise. But as he became president, he was quickly thrust into our politics and he didn't want to be there. If for those who don't remember, I, I, I'm sure most of us do, but you know, just in case, I mean, his conversation with Trump was the 
topic of Trump's first impeachment trial. It was a conversation that questionably, in, in which questionably Trump tried to blackmail Zelensky and the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian government, I should say, into investigating Joe Biden's son and his dealings in Ukraine. And so Trump would do that. That doesn't sound like Donald Trump. <laughs> right. And so he was withholding aid. Uh, Ukraine, understandably, now we understand how badly they needed our aid and support. Because, again, to backtrack a little bit, the war in Ukraine really has been going on since 2014 when Russia illegally annexed Crimea. And that was a response to the Ukrainian people wanting Ukraine to be less of a puppet government for Russia. They wanted Ukraine to be part of Europe. There was a lot of problems going on before we were aware of those problems. Yeah, as you said earlier, from our vantage point, we usually don't see it until it really explodes onto the world stage. And then we have to look back to say, how did this happen? How did we miss it? When aid was being withheld from Ukraine, now we can understand how important that aid was because they were already in the middle of this problem, in this problem with Russia. The thing is, so A, Zelensky didn't want to be this uh, sort of, um, okay, so he didn't want to be a puppet. The people didn't want to be a puppet for Russia. Well, guess what? They don't want to be a puppet for America either. The way that the Trump administration was handling Ukraine felt very much like puppetry, right? Like they they had a use for it. it, had nothing to do with Ukraine itself. It was about what Ukraine could serve in this larger picture for the Trump administration of winning against Biden, et cetera, et cetera. So he had said that. He's like, I didn't want, in interviews afterwards, he said, I didn't want Ukraine just to be a puppet in another government's play. I want Ukraine to be looked at as the country of value, which it is. And so this was his value, which he held on to. And being human, not perfect, just human, he was able to just kind of show his discomfort at the situation. If you ever watch, rewatch the videos of him and Trump giving a press conference, he looks unbelievably uncomfortable. But he never said, he never played into it. He never said, he pressured me, he didn't pressure me. He didn't want to be a part of our problems and our game. And so he was able to stay true to what he was there to do, which was represent his people. Well, and now it's all kind of coming full circle, right? I mean, even in today's newspaper, you see stories about politics in the US leveraging Ukraine as that puppet here domestically of, you know, approving the budget and the foreign policy and the money's going to run out to support Ukraine if Congress doesn't take action. What I'm wondering, and I'd love your perspective on it is, will Zay be able to continue to paint the picture of Ukraine being truly centrist in its nature, defined by individuality, independence, limitlessness, in the face of this significant effort now here in the U.S. to again repolarize the war in Ukraine and to politicize it. And we've already heard, I think, the groundwork being laid by Trump and the Republican Party that if they get back into office, there is definitely a threat to the support that's being provided to Ukraine because he has such an isolationist philosophy about the place that the U.S. occupies in the world. What are your thoughts on, if you look into the crystal ball, how this gets maintained going forward? So my, I can tell you my thoughts on Zelensky. I'm pretty um, confident in that. I think he's going to continue to do what he's doing regardless of what happens. He's not going to just cater to one side of our politics. That's not, not going to happen. I'm also very concerned. You have just described the situation. I also find it very questionable given that Zelensky had never played into Trump's hands to begin with um, years ago. And now this is coming full circle, as you said. And he's kind of threatening, and not just Trump, but 
other conservative, like the, I would say the extremist conservative, since we're talking about centrist versus extremism, I find, again, I don't have a crystal ball, but I find it very unrealistic that America will cut aid and support for Ukraine. I also have a very um, larger question that I keep not seeing in the newspapers enough. And this is Russia's involvement in the Middle East. Russia is a close ally of Iran. Russia supports what's going on in the Middle East now because it serves it very well. Another war takes away the spotlight from Russia's war in Ukraine, which is a complete war of aggression. Sometimes situations are complicated. There are complicated. Middle East is complicated. Russia and Ukraine is not complicated. <laughs> it's really not. So I think that I would hope that despite what's being told to followers, to people who will ultimately vote in one way or the other, I hope that leaders who end up in very powerful positions understand the precarious situation of the world right now. Yeah, can see through all of the the mess to get to the heart of the issue for sure. Sorry, I was just going to add, like, I think that because of this very, as you said, our very polarized society right now, a lot of it has to do with the technology as well that we live in, where like, you kind of live in the truth you want to live in, right? You keep getting served more of the truth you already subscribe to. I think that because of that, politicians also have to just play up that extremism. Mm -hmm. I'm not defending anybody. I'm just saying that I think that when push comes to shove, they will do what needs to be done which is, I don't see how you could stop supporting Ukraine. Yeah, I, I hope that's the case from your mouth to God's ears. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and one of the things I find fascinating about your book is, you know, it's really not just about Ukraine and it's not written just for Ukrainians. The, the concepts and the messages from the book are really universally applicable. And, and I'd like to do just that right now. I'd like to apply some of the principles that you talk about in your book to the other conflicts around the world and right here at home in the U.S., as we were alluding to earlier. As someone with Ukrainian roots and a Jewish heritage, I'm, I'm really curious to get your perspective on what I see as a challenging question. Uh, what do you see as the key differences? You highlighted there, there is a difference between what's going on in the Middle East, what's going on in Ukraine. But what can you can you better explain what you see as the key differences in the war in Ukraine, which seem to immediately unite and bring together our country here in the U.S. in support of Ukraine versus the war in the Middle East, which has just as quickly dramatically divided our country? The war in the Middle East is a much older war. It goes it goes back, um, you know, maybe to the beginning of time. Who knows? Depends on what religion you follow. Um, the beginning of recorded history. Recorded yes. history, at least, let's say. Right. Yeah. Time goes. That's a good point. Time goes way before recorded history. Once upon a time, we were all just cavemen and women. Right. <laughs> my big joke for myself is, you know, I'm a Ukrainian Jew. I'm also a Latvian Jew. I'm half and half. I was born in Latvia. So my joke, not funny, but my joke is, you know, all I need is for a war to start in Latvia. And then literally every place I'm from is at war. So it's a go. weird, weird um, legacy to carry. But I do have a legacy of war in my family history. My family are also Holocaust survivors. Uh, my grandparents are Holocaust survivors. I mean, everyone's deceased now. But so I have a very keen understanding of how, unfortunately, the... Um, Israel-Palestine conflict is badly PR'd. <laughs> it's been, there's so little information that the average person I think knows about the history of Israel slash Palestine. It doesn't matter. To me, the monikers are not that important. There's, it's a history right. of a place on this that earth. Place. Right. Yes. 
has been a complicated history since recorded since our recorded history. So that's a major difference in that uh, that place has always been one of contention in some ways, and yet of extreme importance to like every Western religion. The difference being it's an older conflict in some ways. The other difference being that there's an easy solution to the Russia-Ukraine war, a very easy solution. Russia just has to withdraw its troops. That's it. Russia has to just go back to Russia. Russia's big. Russia has plenty of territory. Russia basically just has to withdraw its troops from Ukraine. And- the kindergarten solution. There's plenty of room in your sandbox. Stay out of mine. Exactly. And 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 it's solved. Honestly, the problem solved. There's more nuances like, is Ukraine then allowed to join NATO? Is it not? There's nuances, but it's a pretty easy solution. What I've always known about Israel, I have a lot of family, have always had family in Israel because my gr- great grandmother's uh, siblings left from what was then not Soviet Latvia. There was no Soviet Union there, but it was just a shtetl in Latvia. They left to Israel, for example, that's on one side, that long ago. That's many generations ago. So I've always had family in Israel. Very complicated situation. I've always known about its complexity because I've been there many, many times as a child. It's um, a situation that's so complicated because people of different religions and ethnicities lay claim to it, should be able to live there. In my opinion, one side, again, not under the current government, there's governments that are problems, but I think that one side would be willing to do it. And maybe the other side, the people would also be willing to do it. But again, uh, at that point, the Hamas being like a completely autocratic organization is not giving, basically people right now don't have the chance to live in the peace that hopefully one day they, they will. And that's, that's a complicated situation as opposed to Russia, Ukraine. <laughs> for sure. For sure. And let's now look at that same lens and apply it to the conflicts that I've been discussing here in the U.S. And you talked a, a minute ago, the, the point you made about the Russian invasion truly united Ukraine. There's nothing more uniting than a common enemy. Uh, but I don't know that there's any common enemy or any specific issue that I feel like could ever bring the United States together in total unity today. I don't know that we have that common enemy out there or that we would rally around any fight. Uh, that might happen here in the U.S. in this day and age. What's your view when you look at the sa- at the U.S. through this same lens that you're using to look at Ukraine? Do you think that there is a grand uniting force out there that could exist for our country? Look, I, I know an easy question, right? No, no, no. It's you know, I I just keep thinking, you know, and and listening to you, and it's the truth. You're saying it. This is what happened because this is how it happened. I would love for the human race to evolve beyond needing a common enemy to come together. That's my great hope. I just want to say that. I mean, is there a way for us to unite without a common enemy? That's another question. I mean, that's a, in some ways a bigger question because in Ukraine, there's an enemy for Israel. There's an enemy. And for the Palestinians, there's an enemy. How's that working out? (laughs) Even in Ukraine? Yes, there's an enemy, but could they, keep that sense of unity and this drive going without that enemy? I would hope so. We'd have no way to answer that. (laughs) Last equivalent we had here in the United States may date all the way back to JFK and the space race. There was an enemy there. The, the, The enemy was Russia. We have to stay ahead of Russia. 
but it was toward a noble pursuit in my mind. It was towards scientific progress and exploration. It's always great to have some sort of motivating force to get you off your butt and, and get in gear. But I, I, like I said, I, I just look at today and, and I wonder what that could ever be that could actually bring all of us together. So honestly, then my, my answer is probably similar to you, yours. I don't think there is that right now yeah. for us. I mean, yeah. look, you would think the pandemic would be that, for example. Yeah. But it was not. <laughs> it was not. It was yes. not. It became even more a more divisive force rather than us coming together to combat it. I think that we are so divided that we're so divided, right? So like yeah. whatever it is, this major problem globally will just divide us more. This major health problem will divide us more. Where are we all going with this? You know, it depends on who you ask. Again, as I've mentioned, I'm a spiritual nerd. So I do listen to, you know, channeled wisdom. And there's some stuff that's very hopeful to me that makes yeah. sense, whether you believe in all the spiritual mumbo jumbo that I do or not. And that yeah. is that we are evolving. You know, my husband, for example, is a big like history buff and loves like the history of war as a whole. And as much as I find that like not interesting to me, I find that very helpful because he reminds me that humans have been at war since recorded history. And yeah. I, I bet before recorded history, yeah. we've always been warring. And in fact, we are evolving in where we don't just war without thinking, where, mm -hmm. where at least we think or we mourn or we grieve the situation. We don't just, I mean, people used to war without thinking twice and that's just how it was. If we look back, we can actually see our evolution and improvement, improvement with food security on a global level. So if we're evolving, so this is the if, if we're evolving as, as human species, as, as a species, then isn't it natural that right now at this point, we freak out and run to our corners. Oh yeah. Change is difficult. Right. So before hopefully an eventual step forward where we can unite, but I don't know what that looks yeah. like, but that's where I hope that we are, that we are managing extreme, complicated and speedy change. And yeah. so this is a symptom, our divisiveness and an ability to come together is a symptom of that change. You've talked a bit about spirituality. We'll come back and touch on that a little more. Uh, later on, but I do feel that if there's a way to take spirituality, which is such a an esoteric concept for most people, it doesn't find a place in our daily lives, certainly as much as all the conflicts in the world do. But for instance, we had Steve Farrell on Datages, who's a member of the Friends and Family, and he spoke about the new universal dream and this massive movement that they have worldwide to find this common ground and to find ways to connect all of us together and to recognize and empower and grow our oneness. And you had a, a whole uh, chapter in your book entitled Be the Link. And I loved that name of that chapter. And I think at the end of the day, maybe that is the only answer we have in front of us is to find a way to tap into spirituality as a mechanism of us finding unity without conflict. And by the way, unlocking your inner Zelensky is all was born out of this idea of spirituality not being tangible for people. So I just I was so moved by the amount of support and love outpouring for this guy, this this guy who kept saying I'm just an ordinary guy. And I, you know, because I'd studied him for some time, I was like, okay, I'm gonna break down what he's doing that makes all of us, all of us be like, wow. Or at least listen, at least a year and a half ago, everybody was awed by this person, his bravery, his moral clarity, et cetera. And so I, I decided to break that down because it is tangible, actually. It's like what you said, that 
what we can do is what each of us has in front of us to do. <laughs> so that's different for you than for me, but we can each do it. Well, let's do more of that right now uh, here, because uh, I want to take some of these lessons and, and help our friends and family apply them to their own lives. Uh, let's bring us back down to a more individual ground level perspective. I don't know about how you spend all of your time, but I'm guessing that like me, you're not leading a country during wartime. I imagine no. <laughs> that's also true for most of the Dadages friends and family. So how can we all take the lessons and the inspiration that we can obtain from Zelensky and apply those things, as you said, to the everyday challenges in our own lives? We are not, for the most part, most of us leading countries. I, was, I, I would venture to say 100% of your listeners are not leading war-torn countries right now. Probably a good estimation. I think those folks are busier than us. Maybe they don't have time to listen to us, and that's okay. I also wouldn't want to be them right now, is the truth. That's not my calling, but we all, each of us has a calling and each of us has goals. And even if we don't have goals, we're usually looking for goals. I, I know I think back to myself in a time of being lost and I still was looking for some roadmap. And I think that in Unlocking Your Inner Zelensky, I tried to do this, but I just followed the roadmap laid out by this one person. However, because I've studied spirituality and have been the student because of my own needs, there are similarities in his roadmap and many other people's roadmaps. And so some of these things that I think could be helpful for anyone, envisioning your goal, envisioning what it is that you want. And I don't mean visualization. That's one thing I like to do sometimes. You know, it's that's not what I mean. I mean, envisioning, like actually figuring out what it is that you want to accomplish, remembering the why of it, because that's one thing Zelensky's very good at. He always comes back to the why. People ask him, well, aren't you tired? You know, how can you keep doing this? Aren't you getting tired? And he, he says, simply says, I can't do worse than my people. I don't have the permission to do worse than my people. My people are tired, but they keep doing it. So I have to keep doing it. So his why are his people. So for me, it's always important to remember your why. And I think that we can all use that as our roadmap. I also believe an important thing that I learned from Zelensky, and I use myself now, is coming from a place of service. So how can you use your talents or your, your abilities or your training, whatever it is that you're trying to create in your life, how can you do that but from a place of service? So that's flipping a little bit of not what's my goal, what's my business goal. What's my, it's like, what? how can I use everything that I have and everything that I want to accomplish, how can I use that to serve humanity, to serve the world, to serve my family, to serve my community, whatever it is, whatever you're trying to serve. And I know that's something you mentioned in this um, idea of oneness, of coming together. That idea is an idea of service. And there's a service chapter in the book as well, as you know. And then one of the other lessons is staying humble. Staying humble sounds easy and it's easy when you're on your way up. I think staying humble becomes way more important when you get closer to the top. There's different challenges, right? So in the beginning of our journey, the challenge is to remember our, our limitlessness. This is where it's hard to see the big goal and you're self-accomplishing it and how you can do it. It's hard when you're in a kind of a rut. Um, I, I'm talking from personal experience here. It's hard to imagine this, your success. But then as you get closer to that top, to that success, it's harder to remain humble. And I think if we can balance both our humility and our limitlessness at the bottom, as well as at the top, I think we'll serve humanity quite well. 
That's a beautiful perspective. And and I feel like in today's day and age, it's such a roller coaster ride as well, because we build up our heroes and then we tear them down. Right. And right. that emotional cycle that's carried out both at the personal level and in public, in full public view through the way, uh, not just people's reality, but their persona is being built up and then torn down again. If you're not staying humble, don't worry. Somebody else will make you humble very quickly. <laughs> yes, of course. And, and unless you're a complete psychopath, I'm not going to name names, like you'll feel like crap about yourself at different points in your journey. That's okay too. That's one thing that Zelensky doesn't put forth in his leadership because he really can't afford to right now. Maybe after wartime, he can. He really can't right now. And that's understandable. But they, he's been asked, you know, he's been asked in various interviews, like, well, do you feel down or do you feel? And he's like, yeah, but not for very long. This is where humor ser serves me. You know, like this is where if you can't laugh, what's the point? He says, you know, like, because this is we all have different tools. It's understandable why humor is his tool. I mean, he used to do skits where he played the piano with his genitals. Seemingly, <laughs> he knew how to be low level funny. And I think that's really important. Base humor. Yeah. Yes. And it's important in, in difficult times. He also said at one interview, which I thought was so funny, he was like, I put on ACDC and I exercise. He's like, I like to listen to ACDC. This is one interesting and slightly vain fact, but I'll just bring it up. Like you, we watch him and he's in these army tees since the beginning of the war and he's looking pretty good. Like he's looking like a person who still takes care of himself. Yeah. Yeah. He's not wasting away or getting, or getting super chubby right. or. Yeah. Right. You see that he continues to exercise and he says it in interviews, people ask him, he's like, yeah, you can't. So I thought he was a great example in a way that maybe doesn't get like that much airtime in the media, but like, mm -hmm. okay, what a great personal lesson to keep the self care going, even in the hardest times. For sure. For sure. And speaking of self, I'd actually like to take some time now and shift our f focus to you, Jesse. I, I want to understand favorite a topic. No and, kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I want to understand a little bit more and, and share also with the, the friends and family how you arrived at this moment in your life. How did you come to write this insightful and inspirational book about Vladimir Zelensky, other than happening to share a, a, a studio with him during the production of the, uh, the the movie you talked about. Yeah, it was called No Love in the City or Love in the Big City, depending how you translate it, which I never understood, but it's on IMDb. It's with both um, names on there. So I am an immigrant, as you've mentioned. I came from the former Soviet Union. I turned eight on route. We had to wait in various European countries for asylum status to, to be granted asylum mm. status before we came here. I turned eight my least favorite birthday <laughs> as a refugee. We were living in a really hot place in Italy at the time with no air conditioning and like m multiple families in one small place. And so it was a pretty difficult journey. Um, I say pretty difficult because from the point of view of a child, it's interesting yeah, versus yeah. difficult. And I, I try to hold on to that. Experiences, yeah. Exactly. I try to hold on to that mentality of a child mm -hmm. because the difficult uh, monikers that we put on things. It's like, that's like a very adult uh, label. <laughs> Children are just wide-eyed taking in the experience and they're very resilient. Totally. Taking in what life throws at them. Right. And that's, yeah. so that was me. And then, but I did struggle and I, you know, I struggled a bunch in America because initially I wanted to be so very American to the point I still do, but, but, but what I did is, and again, 
children take everything in. Unfortunately, they lack tools. And that's what later haunts us as adults. Mm -hmm. The yeah. stuff that we, uh, the traumas that we took in as kids because we couldn't yeah. otherwise. So Couldn't process it effectively. Exactly. To avoid the damage that it could do to, to your psyche at that age. Exactly. So in dealing with my trauma, writing became a way for me to sort of excavate it and deal with it, but also do so where there was a service element to it, right? We talked about service, that there was an element where, okay, what can I take out of it that can help somebody else? Because even though my story is very specific, being this child refugee and going through that, but what I realized in talking to people, I'm a people person, I like people. I'm also somebody who goes in a hole and writes for a long time. So then afterwards, when I get to talk to people, it's exciting. And so what I learned from people is that we all have our refugee, quote unquote, journey. It's just not always as a refugee. We all have our difficulties. What helped me through my difficulties, I know can help other people. So that's how I came upon book one, which was called Don't Just Sit There, Do Nothing. And it was my experiences with the ancient philosophy of the Tao Te Ching, how that ancient philosophy about sort of going with the flow of life, how it helped me. And then in that book, there was a chapter called Use It. The main character of that chapter was Vladimir Zelensky. And it was about his ability to use what life throws at him and to grow from it and to go further on his path. My book, that first book came out four days after the war in Ukraine began. So when I was doing interviews for the book, people, of course, kept asking me about that chapter and about Vladimir Zelensky. And so very naturally, I started talking a lot about it and I started realizing quickly that there's more to do here. And that's how Unlocking Your Inner Zelensky came about. That's fantastic. And, you know, there's another element and you've touched on your migrant experience. Uh, you've touched on your roots in Latvia. My family's background is similar. Uh, my family came as part Russian Jews and part Lithuanian Jews. Elite Fox, I'm Lithuania. And uh, so I can certainly relate to all of that. And I can also relate to what you described, where you struggled for much of your life to sort of reconcile and fully embrace your own identity. I think a lot of us, and this I think is something that is fairly common among Americans because we are such a melting pot. You as a Jew, as a Russian, having several different elements to your heritage. But you say that Zelensky actually taught you that no matter where you were born, you get to say who you are and you get to define it. I, I love that message. And I think that's such a powerful and empowering perspective. How is it exactly that Zay did all of that for you? And, and what did that look like in your own life and your evolution as a human being coming to that point? Yeah. And that's um, chapter one, I believe, is who the bleep. You know, that's because it's because what's more basic and important than figuring out who the bleep you are, right? Now, that's actually a much larger question is the truth, much larger than just where you come from what your family history is, what your religion, what your ethnicity is. And so that's why I always struggled with that. And that's why I was, as I call myself a spiritual nerd, because it's confusing. And it was confusing for me because of my immigrant experiences. But as you've mentioned, it's confusing for everyone for various reasons. And in America, like you said, we're a melting pot of everything. Like I remember asking my husband, who is who is American, an American Jew, and I would ask him like where his family is from. He had no clue. So I had to dig in his family to find out where what different parts, you know. And that's fine for some of us. For others we kind of need to have something. And so what I learned from Zelensky is, look, he was a Soviet Jew, just like I was a Soviet Jew from 
that same generation. He was born into Soviet Ukraine. I was born to Soviet Latvia. It didn't matter back then because it was all under the Soviet umbrella. But he had to immigrate in a way the way I had to immigrate because his country freed itself or tried to free itself, kept trying to free itself from that Soviet umbrella. His country kept changing face. I literally changed countries, but his country kept changing face. And then ultimately he became a star of this continually changing country. And then he became president of this country. My father, who was born, grew up in Ukraine, my grandparents are buried there, remembered Ukraine as being quite anti-Semitic at his time, right? And this is a difficult thing to bring up because this is also one of those like monikers, the Nazi moniker that was used by Putin to attack Ukraine. But then what happened during these many years of Soviet Union falling, the Ukrainian people becoming free and more free is they chose who they wanted to be. And they chose to be a people who united rather than what is going on in our country right now, rather than become divided. They united and clearly they united enough to elect people of all sorts, right? So they elected a Jewish president and a Jewish prime minister, and they were able to see Ukraine as something different than just the specific ethnicity, because there is a Ukrainian ethnicity. Zelensky is not Ukrainian ethnically. He's an eth- ethnically a Jew. That is a different ethnicity in that part of the world. Very complicated to understand for some, but it just, it is. So the Ukrainian ethnicity is a sort of, it's closer to the Slavic ethnicity. It's, it's a specific lineage that goes very badly treated by Russians for generations, by the way. But Ukraine now is a melting pot. You know, it it includes Crimean Tartars. They're Muslim, also very badly treated by the Soviet Union. Historically, it includes Jews like Zelensky. It includes Russian, ethnically Russian people as well who want to live in Ukraine and want to be free. And so in many of his speeches, he would underline that. He would say, look, we have a hundred different ethnicities here, but we are all one and we came together as a single fist. And he would keep underlining that we are all Ukrainian. He used to joke, everyone will be a little bit Ukrainian. The meaning they gave to the moniker Ukrainian was bravery, freedom, and everything else that they're seeking to keep in their country. And so from watching this, I understood that, well, look, if a people can do that, if a president can do that, then every ordinary person can do that as well. We can define ourselves however we choose. And we can all assimilate all of these different pieces and put them together and package them the way that serves us best. Uh, it's, it's really a remarkable perspective for sure. Can I add one more thing to that? I think it's important right Please. now, actually, because you were talking yeah. about the, you know, the divisiveness, right? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, what divisiveness does is it puts us all into our various boxes. So here I am in the Jew box and someone else over there is in the Muslim box. And then where we sit in our boxes, then we have our enemies. And one of the things that I did learn from Zelensky that I talk about in this chapter one is I thought about all the different things that make me up like that on a, on a, like on a molecular level, you know, and right. Like this ethnicity, that ethnicity. And I realized that, but ultimately I'm a citizen of the world. And so when there's these big conflicts that are very painful to all of us from, you know, we all have our generational trauma and we all have our stories. And I have to always remind myself and that helps me get myself out of the box Mm -hmm. that I'm actually a citizen of the world. That's what I chose. That's also kind of what I lived, but that's what I choose ultimately. 
That's beautiful. And uh, it, to counterbalance that, you talk about this global perspective being a citizen of the world, but then it also comes back to the inside, right? It comes back to who we are on the inside and what really drives us and you know, coming back to spirituality and, and emotion and humanness. And you said that there's specific words that held great meaning for you as within, so without. And I think that when you look at this world that's being dominated by extremists, they're channeling fear within all of us as individuals, as their source of power. How do you think that that can be overcome on an individual scale and then translate to this global perspective that you talk about? And there's a chapter on that as well, right? There's a chapter I'm trying to, I was trying to remember as you were talking exactly what I called it. Isn't that funny? But it's good to forget your own words <laughs> from fear to love. Look, it's a continuum, right? Like we are, we don't just go automatically from fear to love. Like I, I fear the terrorists. I love the terrorists. We can't go like, like automatically. I mean, most of us can't automatically go to that, but we can work towards that, right? So the fear aspect is what helps keep this model of power that this um historic model of power that we've had going on in humanity where there's there's power the people in power and there's the rest of us and i think one of the possibilities and this is the one i hope we choose as a collective one of the possibilities uh the technology is offering us is a more democratic kind of power system and more democratic even than our own where like each one of us has capability to hold attention of other people, for example, but not so much attention where it's one person in charge. I mean, it, it, it ends up power being shared by many people, but that's one, that's one possibility. I hope that's where we end up. We can't end up there if we keep subscribing to fear. Subscribing to fear serves those in power because then you're scared and then you need to be protected. And then who's going to protect you? And there's only, you know, there's like option A, option B, and then somebody's going to protect you and that's okay. So I hope that we rise and listen, this is a, this is a very challenging thing to do. I know this from, from myself. Like I say this, but on an individual level, I get that it's challenging and there's, there are things to be scared of. And you know, I'm a mother, like, of course we fear, but we have to rise above that in our decision-making. For sure. And along with letting go of that fear and making that transition that you're talking about, if we go, you know, one more step philosophically, I think that one of the greatest elements that's required in the notion of centrism, it's built into the notion of centrism is patience. And in becoming polarized, our world has also become hyper reactionary with really short attention spans and really quick reactions to every word that's uttered or written across the globe. You're a, a student of the Tao Te Ching, as, you, as you've shared. You've even written a book about it, as you said, your first book, and it, your book was all about non-action. Can you tell us a little bit about the Tao and about the subject of that first book and how you see patience and non-action fitting into this notion and into strong leadership? Yeah. And by the way, centrism to me is also uh, that leans more towards that shared leadership that, that we talked about, because it, in essence, it is shared. It's shared between different factions. It has to be. I'm a student of the Tao Te Ching because I needed it. <laughs> I'm not patient by nature, but I think none of us are these days because we're instant gratification society, right? Mm -hmm. Amazon. With a constant <laughs> stream of inputs. <laughs> inputs and the things you want can get delivered to your door. And so by the way, Patience is, an, is also another aspect of the Unlocking Your Inner Zelensky um, study, uh, because he had said long ago that victory takes patience. Clearly, now we know that it 
taken patience. It's taking patience. It will take patience. He always said, but I don't know how long. I don't know how long it'll take. I don't know when it will come. It takes patience and continuing to do what you did yesterday, continuing to put one step in front of the other with that moral clarity intact. As you said, we've become very reactionary as human beings, <laughs> as, as governments. I talk about this in the book as well. We all have human drives. I think, I believe the job of government is to act from somewhere higher than those human aspects of ourselves. I may be a reactionary as a person, but if I take on the role of leader of a people, too bad. I don't get to just react. I have to take my time. And the Tao Te Ching is one of its many teachings is non-action, not forevermore, but non-action until the action arises. What that means is not being reactionary, but allowing the next intelligence step to arise versus jumping in and doing whatever our more base self tells us we need to do at that time. It's uh, very wise words and a, and a very good uh, actionable recipe yeah. <laughs> for, for, for patience. Yeah. Um, and, you know, let's take leadership on the global scale and now bring it back to leadership on the home front. Uh, and here at Datages, we're all about how our roles as children of parents and our roles as parents to our children factor into everything we do in life. You devoted an entire chapter in your book to looking at children as guideposts. And you say that Zelensky urged members of the Ukrainian parliament to go so far as to hang their children's photos in their offices instead of posting photos of him so they think about the next generation, not the next election when making decisions. Uh, tell us how that factors into leadership and how it factors into your life as a parent. So for me, I never considered myself much of a leader, is the truth. <laughs> okay. I realized only more recently in my 40s, I realized that's sort of a cop out too, because we are all leaders in one way or another. This is what Zelensky yeah. said, right? Yeah. When you least expect it, somebody's looking up to you. Exactly. Exactly. In my life as a mom, which is my like primary role in my town, I've noticed it's my primary role beyond just my children. There are other children. <laughs> there are the, their friends and the neighborhood children. And I have relationships with these children. Some of them think it's cool that like, you know, I write books because because I do some stuff at the library. Like I do when my book comes out, I I do certain events or whatever. And there's my pictures on there. People, the kids come run up to me, say I'm famous. It's really cute. Wow. That's your mom. <laughs> they don't, I mean, my kids don't care, but like the other kids care. They, they think that's cool. They think it's cool. I have a TikTok page or whatever. <laughs> and it's funny. It's pretty easy to be cool to kids so as funny. long as they're not your own. <laughs> I, that's exactly. Is that so true? That is so true. But, but the truth of the matter is like, I, it's easy to discount that as leadership, but we all have leadership opportunities and we don't take them seriously, but maybe we should is the point, right? Mm -hmm. So if you hang up, if you um, figuratively hang up the pictures of your kids, or if you don't have kids, some kids, kids, a kid in your like mental decision-making, you know, room, wherever that exists. However, however you go within yourself to decide in your life where to go next, what to do, if you just factor in children, and I think we as parents do that naturally, we really do for the most part, most of us do it. I'm not going to speak for all parents. There's some shitty parents out there too, but I think that we try to, we try to figure 
our kids into our decision making. It's interesting you say that because I'm, it just brought to mind something that's really powerful for me, which is the, the instant in time. And it wasn't the first hour. It wasn't the first minute. It was the instant that my first son came into the world. I felt this overwhelming feeling that everything I ever wanted for myself, I now just wanted for him. And I think that is that that str- that strong feeling I had in that instant is I think what you're describing. That is so beautiful and so true. It is so true. My daughter is a gymnast. My older one is a competitive gymnast. I was a competitive gymnast in the Soviet Union and my parents, you know, we had to leave because of many circumstances that I think are pretty obvious now. And then I never got a chance to really do that again. And I never pushed my kids into this because it's hard. It's hard on the body. It's hard on the mind. It's hard. So she went this route herself, not having anything to do with me. But as I watch her, it's so funny. As I watch her at the competitions, I have this feeling that she is living my unlived dreams to a degree. And it's such a beautiful thing to watch. And it's exactly what you spoke of, of the things we wish for ourselves. I can relate to that story too, because it's a little different scenario, but uh, my son just started as a freshman at Stanford, which is my alma mater. And now every time I go back to visit him, I've been back like eight times already this fall because he's a football player and it was football season. But every time I'm there, I'm having this like dual reality of seeing and experiencing what he's doing in real time as it's happening but then thinking back and having memories triggered in my own mind of my own experiences that align with what he's going through right now. How interesting. And I think yeah. they'll do better than we did. Not that I'm saying, well, I'm not judging without you. Without a child. doubt. Yeah, without a doubt. <laughs> he's, he's been there for about 12 weeks and I already know he's going to be a better Stanford yeah. student than I was. So Yeah, that's how I feel. Yeah. It's, you're so right. That's how I feel about my kids too. But then in that case, you know, we're doing our job. We're doing our job, not just as parents, but as part of the evolving human race then, you know, then we're doing good. So there's something that you you mentioned in your book. I I heard it and it was kind of just a one-liner, but I really latched onto it, even though you didn't go into a lot of detail about it. And I'd like to see if we can go into a little detail here, because I have a a thought and a theory and I want to see if it plays out. You talked about a story that you tell your children about a toy who didn't know who he is or where he belonged. And to me, this jumped out of off the page, even though I wasn't reading it figuratively, it jumped off the page when I heard it because it sounded like an allegory in many ways for your own journey through life and the journey that we all find ourselves taking together in this world where people are trying to force us into the boxes they create is exactly you said a few minutes ago and the polarizing labels and definitions that they want us to take on in order to shore up their own bases of power and control over our lives. Can you share just a little bit more about this children's story with me and the rest of the friends and family? And do you also see that story as as such an allegory as, I, as I'm thinking about it? I see that story as an allegory for myself, but thank you for reminding me because it's so easy to get insular into yourself that it's, a, it's actually an allegory for most of us. And if you're a person who feels like you belong always, then like, please, like they need to, that person needs to tell us how. <laughs> so this story is about Chiburashka and it was a cartoon. It was a song and it was a plush toy <laughs> that got sold. My, my kids have a couple. So it's this, um, it was this, Chiburashka was a stuffed animal 
a stuffed, a fuzzy stuffed stuffy that had giant ears and a cute little face, but it looked like many things, but wasn't any particular one thing. In the cartoon, the way it goes is they just didn't know what to do with it. So like, do we put it in the, you know, in the teddy bear section? Do we? So no one knew what to do with it. Um, for a while, it lived in a daycare center with kids. It was so happy in that daycare center. Kids got, you know, kids played with it regardless of not knowing what exactly it was. And that's in that daycare center, it found a friend, et cetera, et cetera. So it was the happiness of this toy of Chiburashka came not from knowing exactly what it was, but from defining what, it, right? So it, it became this toy that brought joy to children. And it became a toy that was a really good friend to its friend, the alligator. So it was a very actually moving story um, that I still carry with me. And I would sing them the song from this story. So yes, it was in Russian. We won't ask you to sing today. Oh, no, I'm a bad singer. Let you off the hook for that. <laughs> oh, good, because I'm not good at it. The story definitely, is, so it's interesting. It's one I carried out with me from my childhood in the Soviet Union. And as I immigrated and as I came to America, and it's, it, it surprised me myself that that's the story I would tell the kids. And that's the story, that's the song I would sing. But it stays, it stayed with me because it's a good story. <laughs> well, it doesn't surprise me. Like I said, I, I see the connection. I see how much it relates to you and to everything that we're talking about here today. And as we keep our focus on the kids for a minute, you know, you've shared great messages that we as adults can embrace and absorb and relate to and talking about uh, helping us find our own inner Zelensky. Is there specific wisdom and advice that's come out of your study that is that like one most valuable piece of advice that you feel like is right-sized that you can pass it along to your own children or so the go-to advice that you think the the Dadages friends and family should take away from today and be able to provide to their children. I will give a piece of advice for the for the Dadages audience because I have some great advice for parents that came out from this. And and it's in the book as well. There's more of it in the book because Zelensky spoke himself of how his family is even more of a democracy than his country. <laughs> And he talked about this freedom that he values in his family, but also, so we think of freedom, the way I always thought of freedom as a parent is like, you know, letting my kids make their choices, letting, letting them have their way. I sometimes I thought as like freedom, you know, letting them, but actually the way he explained it is it's a sort of respect for your children because, because he was asked like how much of the truth of what's going on do his children know? And he said all of it. Look, that depends on the age of the children. Clearly, you you as a parent decide what is appropriate for, for them and what is not. But in studying Zelensky, I've become much more, I've, I've started to safeguard my kids less and hand them the truth more. And I have to, it's my job to figure out how to do that in an age appropriate way, but I don't shield them from the, the truth anymore because I realized that part of the freedom is giving them the truth. And so that's more for the parents and, it, and it's a challenge, but it's, I've seen the beauty of it and I've seen it work. My kids are quite young. They're nine and seven. Um, and then for kids, I mean, we talk a lot about, because I now talk to them about the truth and, and because I was working on this book and because DD, their grandfather is from Ukraine and would always have the Ukrainian national anthem playing when we would enter his house. They have an understanding, um, sadly, of war and all of that. They have an understanding of the things that I respect in Zelensky a lot. I think that I've been trying to, continually relate to them some of those aspects. So one is bravery, 
What does that mean? How do you be yourself in the face of pressure? Or how do you stand up to forces that it's easy, where it's easier to just not stand up to? And so we talk about that. and we, we talk about kindness a lot. A lot of it is about kindness. That's what humanity is, right? That's what humanness is. This understanding of you're not better than anyone. You don't need to be better than anyone. But you need to remember how great you are and also to see that goodness or to look for that, at least to look for that goodness in others. Well, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing those messages and, and helping package them in a way that those of us that our parents can, can help deliver them to our children as well. And as we wind down here today, you know, I want to come back to a couple of things. One is I want to make sure to, to provide a strong recommendation to the friends and family that they seek out your book. Can you let everyone know again the name and exactly where they can find it? Both of your books, actually, because I, I'd love to make that available to, to the friends and family. Sure. So um, both my books are available everywhere. Books are sold. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, indie books, bookshops, you know, wherever books are sold. But all of that information lives on jessiekanzer.com. That's J-E-S-S-I-E-K-A-N-Z-E-R.com. Both of them are available in Audible in audio versions or from Libro FM, I should say, that's the indie um, audio version <laughs> seller. And um, actually my first book, I narrated myself. So that's interesting. The second one was with the bigger publishers from, uh, you know, St. Martin's and they have, they work with professional. Well, now people. I have a motivation to go back and listen to your first book so Thanks. I can catch more of your voice in, in line. Oh, well, as well, my mom says, I liked, I like your voice better, but she's my mom. <laughs> She, yes, she's obligated to say yes, that. She is. But I, I imagine it stacks up quite well. I can't wait to. to I love my out. narrator, as you said, for for unlocking your yeah. inner Zelensky. Um, actually, really yeah. quick, I want to say it ended up that her husband, now husband, was a cinematographer. Um, back then, just a you know a camera operator on that film that I was on, uh, the, the wow. set that I was at with unlock with um Vladimir Zelensky. That's incredible. Yeah. And, and you know, it's a good place to finish up because yeah. speaking of comedies, one of the things that we really try to uh, embrace here at, at Datages is the, the power of humor. And no matter how bad things can get or how serious the topics are, I think it's a really important element of life. And in fact, uh, I saw that Zelensky was interviewed by David Letterman in December of 2022. And Zay said, the times are tough, but people keep joking. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you talked in your book about how critical a role humor has played yeah. in his leadership. Can you, just as we wrap up, expand on that just a little bit? And then afterwards, I'm giving you your opportunity to participate in the great tradition here at Dadages of telling the really bad dad joke or mom joke in this case. I watched, by the way, that interview with David Letterman, really fun for anyone interested. But you know, all of Zelensky's interviews are fun because I have not seen him even if it's just a second, I mean, in the first days of the war, even if it's just for a second, he will bring that light in. He will bring that light of humor. And that's what humor is to me. It's light. It's the light. And if you can't bring that in, then you're really doing a disservice to yourself. You deserve, if you're alive, you deserve to have some light in your life, even if you're living through the unthinkable. And so that's what humor does. And that's why it has such a, such a long history of coming from the toughest of times. It's amazing that humor and truth are both such forms of light and you put them together and you kind of have the full spectrum of humanity. And really good humor 
comes from very high intelligence. <laughs> That's what I always think. <laughs> well, then share yours with us. Oh, mine's bad today. Please don't, please don't judge my intelligence. But I thought of one and I, I, I Google dad jokes because I, I know your tradition, but I didn't like them. So I've got one. What do you call a dad who can manage all the schedules, um, all of the personalities of the family and work and global affairs that you have to pay attention to? So basically a dad who can hold it all together. I don't know, Jesse, what do you call that dad? Mom. <laughs> <laughs> touche, touche. <laughs> I love that. And I definitely cannot top that one. I wouldn't even try. That's fantastic. I Thank love you. It. I made it up. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I now know to look out for your next book of jokes coming out <laughs> around the corner. Always. Well, Jesse, this has been absolutely a treat. It's been a pleasure. It's been very informative. We'll put links to uh, your books in the uh, dat on the Datages website, and, and we'll very much look forward to continuing to follow your great career and obviously continuing to follow what you're following as well, Zelensky and Ukraine and how things evolve from here on that side of the world. Thank you again for your time and for bringing your light to us. Thank you so much, Chad. And thank you for the opportunity because without the opportunity, I would just sit in my own room and keep all my light to myself. <laughs> and your cat. And my cat, my cats. You only saw one of them, my multiple okay. cats and kids. <laughs> Beautiful. I'll remind the rest of the Dadages friends and family, dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does. 